I, the hero, will set off for my city. I will set off to my father Enlil. I will set off for my city. I will set off to my mother. I will set off to my mother Ninlil. I will set off to my father, the shining city, the pure place, my Nippur, where black birch trees grow in a good place, my sanctuary Nippur, where white birch trees grow in a pure place. The sanctuary Nippur's name is a good name. Before Dilmun existed, palm trees grew in my city. Before Dilmun existed, palm trees grew in Nippur, and the great mother Ninlil was clothed in a fine linen. listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. We're your co-host, Alex. And Kelsey. And we're currently listening to Nana Siwen's Journey to Nippur. So this is a Sumerian text from the ETCSL translation. So Nippur is not in North Mesopotamia, but it is in the northern part of the alluvium, kind of. Nana Suen is a moon god. His Akkadian name is Sin. In this story, he's also called Ashim Babar. He's the son of Enlil and Ninlil. And the poem is probably a parallel to an annual procession where they would carry the god statue from Ur upriver to Nippur and back. This is probably also the situation with the hymn from episode 10, I believe, about Nanatra's journey to Eridu. The heroic Nanasuen fixed his mind on the city of his mother. Nanasuen fixed his mind on the city of his mother and his father. Ashim Babar fixed his mind on the city of Enlil and Ninlil. Suen set about constructing a barge. He set about constructing a barge and sent for reed matting. So he sends people to gather supplies, reeds and rushes from the marshes, pitch from the Abzu, and wood from the forests of Ebla in Syria, which we'll meet later. Then we see a list of ritual actions. Nana Siwen will gather bulls for the cow pen for the house of Enlil. Ashim Babar will collect fattened sheep for the house of Enlil. Nana Siwen will purify the cow pen for the house of Enlil. Ashim Babar will feed meal to the goats for the house of Enlil. He also collects some other animals, porcupines, long-tailed bush rats, turtles, three types of bird, and two types of carp. The poem presents us with general images of natural fecundity. The first city on his journey is Enegi, or Enegir. He encounters the goddess Ningirida, also called Ninsutu. She's the wife of Ninazu, the patron god of Enegir. Nanasuen will cause 600 cows to give birth to calves for the house of Enlil, for he will cause their bulls to be let loose among them, and he will distribute them along the banks of the Surungrul Canal. Enegir lay ahead of the offerings. Ur lay behind them. Ningirida brought out of the house what should not come out of the house. Welcome, 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 O boat. O boat of Suen, welcome, welcome, O boat. She laid out flour before the barge and spread bran. At her feet stood a covered bronze vat. She pulled out the boxwood bung for him, declaring, I shall rub precious oil on this peg. May ghee, syrup, and wine be abundant in your midst. May the Suhur carp and the Eshtub carp rejoice at the prow of your boat. But the boat did not give her its cargo. I am going to Nippur. So this formula repeats a few times with a couple different goddesses. Sherida, the goddess of Larsa, Inanna of Unug, Ninunuga of Shurupak, and Ninlil of Tumal, his mother. Nippur lay ahead of the offerings, Tumal lay behind them. At the shining key, the key of Enlil, Nanasuan finally docked the boat. At the white key, the key of Enlil, Ashim Babar finally docked the boat. So we'll see what happens in Nippur, but first... The previous four episodes have covered the period between the late 5000s and the early 4000s BCE, which was characterized by more intensive cultural interaction between the southern Mesopotamian Delta and the rest of the region. We talked about southwestern Iran in episode 10, and the Persian Gulf in episode 13, and today we're looking at the rest of Mesopotamia. Specifically, we're starting in the lower Diyala River region in central Mesopotamia at the site of Tel Abada. Then, after a quick look at the late Pottery Neolithic, or the Halaf period, in northern Mesopotamia, we'll see the Ubaid culture move north as a few centers grow larger in tandem with the growth of more complex chiefdoms. 
So I mentioned the Diyala River. This river originates in the highlands of west-central Iran and flows towards the west. Today, it joins the Tigris near Baghdad, but it flowed farther to the south during the ancient past, joining the Tigris a little farther downstream. The first evidence for habitation in this region dates to the 7000s BCE, or the late pre-pottery Neolithic. During this period, a warm climate, lots of rain, and a flat, well-watered valley floor made the area ideal for dry farming, with convenient access to grazing land for livestock in the nearby hills. This valley would also be central to east-west trade routes connecting the Mesopotamian river system to the Iranian highlands. In other words, the Diyala River sat at the center of the entire transregional trade network. This area was sparsely settled during the Ubayid period, with villages spread out across what looks like an ancient network of natural waterways, southeast of the river's modern course. Among these early agricultural villages were two settlements, which would eventually become Eshnuna and Tutub, or the archaeological sites of Tel Asmar and Kafaja. The earliest pottery at these sites belongs to the Ubayid tradition, with no northern pottery styles. They also used characteristically Ubayid tools, like baked clay sickles, even though they lived nearer to sources of stone than other southern Ubayid towns. These affinities suggest closer cultural links with the southern delta than with the pottery Neolithic cultures of northern Mesopotamia, like the Halaf culture we'll talk about in a bit. The Diyala Valley included not only these small natural waterways, but also wide, flat floodplains and swamps similar to those in the southern delta. Early farmers likely planted grain along the banks of receding streams and wetlands, and harvested cereal and reeds with the same clay sickles. They may have also grazed their herds in the highlands during the spring flood season, and in the grassy valley floor after the floodwaters receded in the summer. I mentioned back in episode 10 that our earliest evidence of irrigation comes from the same region of central Mesopotamia. Chogomami is just a little farther upriver than Tel Abada, which we'll look at today. The earliest irrigation projects probably started as attempts to modify and extend these natural streams. The wide, flat valley floor made it easier to move water long distances, to dig ditches to drain swamps and wetlands, and to irrigate large areas of farmland. As the climate began to dry up, both during the 8.2 Killier event and then gradually from the end of the Ubayid onwards, these wetlands began to recede, opening up new areas to productive irrigation agriculture. Like elsewhere, this was a positive feedback loop. More food overall allowed the population to grow, creating more people to develop more farmland, growing more food, and so on. So Tel Abada is an Ubaid town in the Diyala Valley, not far west of Chogamami. It's a ways upriver from the famous later cities in the lower Diyala Valley we talked about, Eshduna and Tutub. So we are on the east side of the Hamran Basin, right on the edge of the Zagros foothills. It would have rained enough here for dry farming, but not by a wide margin. And the annual minimum for rain-fed agriculture has a nasty habit of all coming down at once. So in other words, during the Ubaid period, irrigation projects would help make agriculture a whole lot more secure. So Tel Abada was the farthest upriver you could travel by boat from the southern delta, which may explain why this represented the northeastern boundary of the Ubayid homeland. The majority of the sites we've talked about, Ur, Eridu, Aweli, and Al Ubaid, and we'll look at Unug in a couple episodes, were clustered along a fairly short stretch of the lower Euphrates near the coast at the time. It would have taken weeks or maybe even months to travel upriver from there to Tel Abada, but much less time to travel downriver from Abada back to the delta. So the oldest level at Tel Abada dates from the mid-5000s BCE, with two gypsum-plastered houses with many rooms and rectangular courtyards. Most of the evidence from this level relates to ceramics. We have an oven or kiln and a series of discs ranging from 10 to 40 centimeters in diameter, which excavator Abud Jassim suggested may have been molds of some kind. In general, as at other Ubaid One sites, like Eridu and El Aweli, the pottery is similar to the Samara tradition of central Mesopotamia, as well as to the related Chogomami transitional that is the transition from the Samara to the Ubayid. In other words, rather than appearing out of nothing, Ubayid culture is heir to a long history of interaction between pottery Neolithic cultures, likely mediated through the same region of central Mesopotamia. So the second of these three levels, dating to around 5000 BCE, is the largest and best excavated, with a wider array of pottery and other artifacts. 
11 separate buildings survived from this period, mostly the kind of T-shaped tripartite buildings we've been talking about, separated by well-defined streets and alleyways. These were made with clay bricks and gypsum mortar, as elsewhere, the roofs were made with timber and reed matting and covered with mud. The doors were either made of wood or reed with stone sockets. In addition to local Ubaid pottery, archaeologists also found pottery from the northern Halaf tradition, some of which was decorated with human figures which first appeared on Samara pottery. In other words, as we've talked about, there weren't three completely separate cultures called Halaf, Samara, and Ubaid, but instead a variety of overlapping cultural and artisanal traditions. Across the entire site, 127 infants were buried in storage jars, often with a special kind of decorated bowl placed over the top of the jar. These burials rarely included any other kinds of grave goods beyond a few beads. This tradition of infant jar burials had a long history in Mesopotamia, since so many children died young in prehistory, and it may have been related to later poetic metaphors linking clay vessels with the womb. As we'll see, 57 of these infant jar burials, or almost half, were concentrated under the floor of one particular household. This household, called Building A, was a large tripartite structure at the center of town, with three T-shaped courtyards and an outer wall decorated with buttresses. There was clearly something important happening in this building. Besides the 57 babies I mentioned, this building also produced fine gypsum vessels, lots of marble mace heads, and administrative tools like clay tokens and stamp seal impressions. In other words, this building was likely home to some kind of powerful social entity, which expressed its authority by means of stone mace heads, and kept track of its holdings by sealing goods with stamp seals, and exchanging tokens with the objects they represented as they flowed in and out of the household storage. This building was over three times as large as the surrounding houses, and it retained its prominence throughout the entirety of Level 2, suggesting that it served as a public administrative authority for this entire period. So was this a chief's household or a temple? In other words, did this household's authority over the rest of the settlement correspond to a particular family's inherited power, or did this household serve the practical and religious needs of the entire community without reinforcing the primacy of a single lineage? We don't have enough information to know for sure, but as in the Southern Delta, we find no evidence of structural social inequality in local burials. In other words, everyone seems to be buried with more or less the same set of stuff, and no graves stand out in terms of the wealth or prestige of their grave goods. This may suggest that, even as the household at Building A started to formally administer more of the local economy, the power to do so was vested in the household itself, or, if it was a temple, in the god who lived there, rather than inhering in any particular individual or lineage. So level 1 is the last of these three levels from the early 4000s BCE, which has lots of continuity from the previous level. Houses were built on earlier houses' foundations, possibly because the same families were rebuilding the same houses over and over in the same places. This level was badly eroded, so we can't say as much about the administrative authority, besides that they likely exchanged clay tokens as stand-ins for agricultural products. On the pottery from this level, Abu Jassim in 1983 wrote, quote, Perhaps the most interesting piece is a tall, cylindrical-footed beaker, decorated with vertical panels on which are depicted trees and human beings. On one panel, we see a bearded man climbing a tree. On another, a second man is portrayed in a walking or dancing attitude, end quote. Most figurines, some beautifully painted, depicted animals, dogs, sheep, goats, cattle, and birds. Human figurines were less common and notably less finely crafted. They used the same bent clay nails, possibly to grind flour, Uniquely at Abada, these little tools had animal heads sculpted out of clay. Other artifacts included clay projectiles and various tools made from the stone in nearby hills. So, moving to the Halaf culture, we talked about the Halaf back in episode 9. This is a pottery Neolithic culture that spread across a wide swath of northern Mesopotamia, from the Jazeera Plain in the south to Domus Tepe in eastern Anatolia in the north, starting around the 6200s BCE at the beginning of the 8.2 Killier event. With this onset of colder and drier conditions, Many sedentary farmers wandered out of the river valleys and into the nearby plains, relying less on cereal farming and more on semi-nomadic livestock herding and sometimes hunting. In other words, as the climate made farming less reliable, people sought out a more mobile, flexible lifestyle, less reliant on any single plot of land. Even when the climate began to improve in the early 5000s BCE, 
many people held on to their new lifestyle. A more hospitable climate would have opened up new areas, not only for herding and grazing, but also for seasonal farming. So most Halaf villages were small, under one hectare, likely home to a few dozen people on a seasonal basis. Most of these villages were apparently abandoned after a few generations. People lived in scattered, round houses dug down into the ground, between four and six meters in diameter. Some had a small, rectangular antechamber, resulting in a keyhole-shaped layout. Between these houses, small secondary structures likely served as storage units, so these were probably extended family households. As we've talked about, these were likely the indivisible unit of pottery Neolithic society. As far as we can tell, the daily work of domestic production, cooking, weaving, making tools, and so on, took place outside, in between these buildings. We don't see any evidence of social hierarchy. All houses appear to be about the same size, with the same kinds of stuff. And like at Tel Abada, no graves stand out for being particularly lavish. In a 2015 paper, Marcella Frangipane called Halaf society, quote, horizontally egalitarian, end quote. In other words, each household likely considered itself equal to every other household, and we don't see much evidence of organization beyond these small villages. As we've talked about, they may have maintained these egalitarian relations by means of intentional fission. That is, if the village got big enough to contain rival coalitions of people with competing interests, the smaller coalition may have resolved this dispute by packing up and founding a new village somewhere else. In addition to defusing the immediate conflict, this would also reduce the strain on local resources, create two allies out of one unhappy village, and spread their shared material culture over a wide area over just a few generations. In fact, this may help explain the rapid expansion of Halaf culture across northern Mesopotamia. We've talked about styles of fine painted pottery shared across the Halaf world, even between areas with otherwise different material traditions, speaking to a tradition of feasting shared across other cultural boundaries. The specialized skills required for the manufacture and decoration of this pottery, which required mastery of both pottery and painting, likely indicate a degree of labor specialization, possibly as suggested for later periods, by itinerant potters who trained and worked in different places. This fine pottery was likely used for religious celebrations and special occasions like weddings and funerals, all of which would have provided an opportunity to impress one's dinner guests with the quality of the tableware. Speaking of horizontal egalitarianism, these shared traditions of table etiquette would have given heads of household a way to showcase their own prestige and generosity while also honoring their guests, that is, a way to build alliances by means of mutually beneficial interactions, ranging from the meals themselves to exchanging gifts to arranging marriages. In the absence of homogenous villages from the earlier Neolithic, these feasting traditions gave isolated villages and households a social framework to interact with the rest of the Halaf world. In other words, these traditions joined these smaller settlements into a much larger society. So like I said, most Halaf villages were small, with just a few houses and smaller storage buildings. However, a few larger villages were home to larger, multi-room public buildings. Just like in the Ubaid South, these served as administrative centers for storing grain out of the farm goods, keeping track of the flow of these goods in and out of storage, and often as craft workshops for pottery, textiles, stone tools, and so on. These public buildings served as the centers of regional economies, coordinating not just large-scale storage and craft production, but also long-distance trade, including in the manufactured goods being produced here. The exact nature of their authority is unclear. As we'll see, unlike in Ubaid sites, there isn't a clear spatial demarcation between secular and religious activity, so it's not certain that these public buildings can be considered temples yet. So as we've talked about, starting in the late 6000s BCE, administrative centers like these used stamp seals to identify certain goods with certain people. If you wanted to store your stuff in these public storage facilities, all you needed to do was seal a container with a lump of clay and push your stamp seal with its unique design into the clay. When it dries with your unique impression, no one will be able to break the seal on the container without breaking the design that you impressed into the clay with your seal. So it'll be obvious if anyone messed with your stuff while you were gone. We saw these stamp seals at Tel El Kerk in episode 7 and Sabi Abiyad in episode 8, and we see the same system at these halaf centers on a similarly small scale. The fact that people had to mark certain goods as belonging to certain people indicates that the entire community no longer held all goods in common. In other words, this may be the earliest evidence of a concept of private property. So it's hard to come up with an end date for the halaf period. The transition to the northern Ubaid period was a long, gradual process of cultural interaction, 
beginning sometime in the 5400s BCE and ending sometime between 5200 and 5000 BCE. The problem is compounded by the fact that we have very little evidence from this period in general. The northern Ubayid refers to a particular material culture in northern Mesopotamia, strongly influenced by the Ubayid culture in the southern delta, and in contact with a wide-ranging network of trade and cultural interaction between late 5000s and about 4500 BCE. As I talked about last episode, this wasn't a one-directional imposition of southern Ubayid culture on a passive northern Halaf culture. Just the opposite. The interaction between these different regions, with their unique economies, large sedentary irrigation farmers in the south, mobile herders in the highlands, and so on, not only spread cultural traits like pottery, architecture, jewelry, and head shaping across the entire network, but also resulted in completely new emergent properties that hadn't existed before this interaction. In other words, the South didn't export its culture wholesale. Instead, multi-directional exchange of people, trade goods, technology, and social practices ended up permanently transforming every society involved. For example, just as the North adopted Southern styles of architecture, pottery, and social organization, the South adopted systems of record-keeping, like stamp seals and clay tokens, which had only appeared in Iran and in the North before contact. Later, the public building in late Ubaid Unug invented complex tokens, the tokens with marking on them, encoding more specific information. Complex tokens didn't exist in the north during this Ubaid period, but during the next major wave of intensive cultural interaction, that same Ubaid village that invented complex tokens, Unug, will export its mature culture to the entirety of Mesopotamia. Anyway, during the Halaf Ubaid transition, we often see Halaf art on Ubaid types of pottery, or vice versa. In 2015, Marcella Franjapane described this as evidence of, quote, long period of cohabitation of people belonging to the two groups and imitating each other, end quote. Over time, the more complex shapes and decorations of halaf pottery will give way to simpler shapes, usually decorated with geometric patterns in a single color. So like I said, this episode is about the northern Ubayid period, corresponding to northern Mesopotamia's participation in a network of cultural exchange connecting northern and southern Mesopotamia with western Iran and the Persian Gulf, which grew up during the late 5000s and flourished in the early 4000s BCE. We looked at Iran in episode 10, the south in episodes 11 and 12, and the Gulf in episode 13, Today, we'll be focusing on the Ubaid phenomenon in northern Mesopotamia. As during the previous Halaf period, most settlements during this period were small rural villages under one hectare, home to between 50 and 100 people. However, as we'll talk about, the Ubaid also saw overall population growth and the rise of a few larger centers with well-developed administrative authorities in charge of public buildings. They're still farming and herding at the household level, relying on rain to water their crops. In other words, their basic subsistence hasn't changed much since the Halaf. However, they are hunting a lot less now. 90% of animal bones come from domestic animals, compared to less than 40% at some earlier Halaf camps. Among the hallmarks of the new Ubayid material culture are communal cemeteries and tripartite houses and temples with a long central hall, which may have housed a larger extended family structure. Besides the eponymous Ubayid style of painted pottery, contact with the southern delta introduced many tools made of baked clay, invented in a delta plain with no stone at all, into a region that had been working local stone into tools for tens of thousands of years. Specifically, these northern sites produce clay sickles and the same kinds of bent clay nails that may have been for grinding flour, as well as some clay objects that may have been either practical or symbolic, like little horn-shaped objects and conical pottery rings, which may have been for shaving excess clay off of large drying pots. By way of personal ornamentation, Ubayid culture also introduced labres, or lip discs, and clay discs which they apparently attached to their clothes, as depicted in figurines, which themselves may have been decorated in some way now invisible to us. In other words, this new Ubaid culture included both aspects of permanent public identity, like monumental buildings and cemeteries, as well as more ephemeral aspects of personal identity, like jewelry. At the same time, some aspects of local culture continued unchanged. They retained their local styles of stamp seals rather than importing southern styles. Like I said, these stamp seals were likely tied to personal identity, as we've seen from the graves at Tel el Kerk. Also, northerners had made clay figurines for thousands of years, and they kept making the same kinds throughout the Ubaid period, including the middle-aged woman from sites like Chachal Haryuk, they never adopted the southern-style Ophidian figurines, which may have represented adolescent girls or more slender, younger women. Of course, we can't know exactly what they used these figurines for, 
were even that they were used in the same ways in the North and the South. But it is notable that amid all this cultural exchange, they held on to what may have been their most intimate expression of personal identity. We also see more prestige goods, like makeup palettes made of stone or beads made of lapis lazuli, each the product of both the relatively unskilled work of mining the material and transporting it, as well as the skilled work of a lapidary. While we can't know exactly where each object was made, we do know that each object represents a major investment of labor, and they wouldn't be exchanged lightly. In other words, in an economy without money, the amount of time spent creating an object is a pretty good proxy for how valuable it was considered to be, meaning that an object which took an artisan many, many, many hours to create would be exchanged as a higher value gift in a more prestigious setting. We also see more variation in the size of domestic houses. In other words, some families seem to have bigger houses than others. Part of this probably results from a difference in social organization. To the extent that we can understand social organization from agriculture, Ube domestic houses are bigger than Halaf houses, likely because more people lived there. Even within settlements, though, some domestic houses are bigger than others, even of the same type, which may indicate some kind of status inequality between families or lineages. In other contexts, this has been described as a feature of chiefdom societies. We'll talk more about political developments during this period later on. So like I said, this is not a process of one directional cultural change with Southerners imposing their culture on the North, nor was it as simple as migrations of Southerners bring their culture with them into Northern villages, although migration certainly seems to have played a part. These changes didn't all happen at once, and as I mentioned, they didn't all introduce aspects of culture that originated in the South. Even so, by the early 4000s BC, some Northern villages like Tepegara had a lot more in common with the South than their ancestors had a thousand years earlier. So how should we understand this adoption of Ubaid culture? Are we looking at groups migrating out of large, dense southern towns and marrying into northern villages? Or are northerners adopting certain aspects of elite identity, the material, cultural version of affecting a southern accent, for the same reasons we talked about, impressing dinner guests, finding partners for trade and marriage, and so on? As it happens, it's complicated, and there were likely several factors at play. We'll look at three hypotheses in what I consider to be increasing order of plausibility. That these represent trade networks set up by southern settlements, that these represent large migrations of southerners to dry farm regions in the north, and that this material culture represents the widespread adoption of a trans-regional elite identity. As we'll talk about, I think we're looking at a combination of the latter two factors. So one hypothesis, largely based on parallels to later periods, like the Uruk period, posits that the Ubaid material culture spread out of the Delta Plain, primarily as a result of networks of exchange set up by leaders of large Ubaid settlements to import natural resources like copper, timber, flint, and obsidian. As we've talked about, the Southern Delta Plain has an inexhaustible amount of water, mud, and reeds, but very little of anything else. So, this idea continues, the priests or chiefs in charge of Ubaid public buildings in the south made alliances with leaders in the nearby highlands, likely at dinners facilitated by Ubaid pottery, and arranged to import stone and timber from the mountains. Depending on how far one takes this argument, these southern chiefs may have sent small populations of southerners to live in northern villages to teach the locals how to make Ubaid pottery and to facilitate the southward trade. In this scenario, Ubaid towns would import the natural resources they need, northerners get access to southern technology, and chiefs on both sides get access to a wide trade network, so everyone wins. One major problem with this hypothesis is that the southern towns don't actually seem to need massive quantities of foreign resources. For example, while sickles and grinding tools made of baked clay may seem obviously inferior to us, they were just as easily created as stone tools in the north, and they seem to have worked just fine. This was doubly so with copper, which nobody anywhere used all that much before about 4500 BCE, especially in the south. Obviously, these goods did make their way to the south, but we've only found them in small amounts, consistent with many indirect trade links, rather than direct links between the Delta wetlands and the mountains. After all, Ubaid daily life was already fine-tuned for their environment, which included not only the asymmetrical distribution of resources already mentioned, but also a small volume of trade with their neighbors, themselves in contact with their own neighbors, and so on. Another problem is the question of what southern towns had to trade in return. The obvious answer is grain. After all, what made the Delta unique was its ability to grow more grain than anywhere else in the region. We've talked about the fact that grain is shelf-stable, able to be transported, and so on. In theory, this would make grain a good candidate for export. 
But we have to consider the period we're talking about. Before horses, and likely even before the domestication of donkeys, they might be traveling with ox carts, but they're more likely to be traveling by foot, and imagine trying to carry enough grain, you know, in a bag, traveling on foot, to make the trip worth it. Remember, pretty much all communities, including mobile shepherds, are growing some amount of their own grain. It's a prerequisite for surviving in a rural countryside. In other words, outside the large towns, with their big redistributive public households or temples, nobody can afford to rely on strangers or foreign communities to grow grain for them and feed them in perpetuity. So they likely did exchange amounts of grain as gifts for feasts and during emergencies, but it's unlikely that any group of people would depend year-round on foreigners to feed them. The same arguments apply against most animal products. Whatever the South could offer, Northerners were already producing themselves. So, you know, yes, the Delta could support large herds of sheep, but so could the North. Southerners did spin wool into thread with spindle whorls, but then again, so did Northerners. Besides, it's not all that clear that sheep during this period were anywhere near as productive as modern domestic sheep in terms of wool. Breeding sheep to produce the amount of wool that we know them for today was a process of selective breeding that took thousands of years, and the process of turning wool into textiles may have been too labor-intensive to industrialize for export at this point. And, you know, even if they were exchanging organic materials, we don't have any evidence because they would have all decayed. So, you know, any argument that relies on prehistoric exchange of organic materials is necessarily an argument from absence. You know, if they were trading wool or leather or cheese, that would have all decayed thousands of years ago, so we can't be sure. Of course, we know that Ube towns had to be in some kind of contact with the North. For example, they definitely got their obsidian from the highlands of eastern Anatolia. It makes up a small minority of their stone tools, between 2 and 5% for the total assemblage. But it is proof that there were trade links between the southern delta and the far northern mountains. Unlike during the later Uruk period, however, we don't see that much Ubayid pottery at the northern sites exporting this obsidian. In other words, northern obsidian was reaching the south, but there's not much evidence that southern goods were being exchanged that far north. More plausible than direct trade links between Ubayid towns and mines and far off mountains is a network of small-scale informal exchange across the entire region. With materials like obsidian, which don't need to be smelted or industrially processed, nomadic groups may have traveled straight to the source to harvest obsidian cores directly from the earth, as they were already, no doubt, used to harvesting flint and chert. For groups of mobile herders migrating between hills and pastures, encountering each other and sedentary farmers, obsidian made a perfect gift, for the same reason that precious metal would be valuable later on. Obsidian doesn't decay or degrade over time, and it's labor-intensive to produce, in this case involving the trip to the mountains to mine it, which concentrates a lot of value in a small object. Unlike precious metal, however, obsidian is a tangibly superior material for practical purposes, that is, it provides a very sharp cutting edge, making it that much more valuable as a gift. This exchange would necessarily be informal and infrequent, largely arising by chance rather than being formally organized by a bureaucratic institution, especially outside shouting distance of the larger towns. Crucially, the presence of small amounts of foreign obsidian didn't change the way anyone made tools. Northerners still made the vast majority of their tools out of local flint, and southerners still made tools from clay and flint imported from closer sources. All of this is to say that, as far as we can tell, Ubaid Southerners did not seem to have played an active role in organizing trade outside the Delta. So moving on to a more plausible hypothesis, migration. For a lot of complex reasons outside the purview of this podcast, in the absence of better evidence, scholarship of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, CE, tended to explain the spread of cultural traits as different as language, religion, craft production, the shapes of people's schools, and so on, primarily as a result of migration. In other words, academics during the height of formal European imperialism tended to describe change over time in terms of conflict between capital R races. Through this lens, the spread of the Ube culture was imagined as a kind of Volkswanderung, imagined like the barbarian invasions into the late Roman Empire. For example, the northern site of Arpachia was violently burned and sacked around the time Ubaid styles start to appear alongside Halaf pottery. Agatha Christie's husband, Max Balawan, attributed this destruction to Ubaid invaders, finding what he interpreted as two distinct shapes of skull among burials from the site he and his colleagues didn't explicitly say, but did strongly imply that these represented the local northern, quote-unquote, Halaf race, and the intrusive southern, quote-unquote, Ubaid race, 
the latter bringing their particular style of painted pottery with them as they pillaged. Beyond the darker historical context, it's easy to see why this was an attractive hypothesis. It explained social change as a single event, accomplished in a few hours by a few dozen violent men, rather than as a result of a series of mostly peaceful interactions between several groups of people over many, many generations. Obviously, the race to pseudoscience didn't stick around forever, but it's easy to forget that the consensus a few decades before, pots aren't people, was that different pottery styles represent genetically distinct subspecies of human. So starting around the 60s, archaeologists started to look for explanations other than migration to explain these cultural changes over time, noting, as we have, that there's lots of evidence for artistic styles traveling between groups of people rather than only within these groups of people, and that there are lots of ways for ideas to spread that don't involve violence or demographic displacement. More relevantly, the small minority of interior culture that doesn't decompose after millennia in the ground is incapable of telling us anything specific about either language or genetics, unless we're looking at skeletons with genetic material, which is different. However, none of this proves that nobody migrated from the Ubaid Delta northwards. In fact, based on current understanding of skilled crafts like fine-painted pottery, it's highly likely that at least artisans regularly traveled between sites. Similarly, groups of mobile herders are by definition constantly traveling between different sites, and anytime humans interact, they're going to invite each other to dinner, fall in love, get married, throw a big party, exchange gifts, get drunk, and so on. Even in an entirely sedentary society, every generation needs to find new marriage partners outside their family, which necessarily involves making new connections with new groups of people. Depending on marriage customs, one or both of the newlyweds will have to move to a new home, possibly far away from their place of birth. In other words, even without large-scale migrations, the status quo in these prehistoric societies would have involved a fair amount of travel, exchange, and intermarriage between different communities, often far apart. So did people migrate from the Ubaid Delta northwards? Most of the settlements with Ubaid material are in the dry farming region of the north. This may or may not be significant, since this is where large-scale agriculture is possible without irrigation. But it does raise the possibility that southerners migrated north to escape the demands of irrigation farming. There are trade-offs in either case. Irrigation is much more labor-intensive, but also more reliable and more productive, hence the enormous populations we'll see in the south. On the other hand, dry farming, as done with hand tools since the early Neolithic, is still labor-intensive, but easier to accomplish on a small scale, with fewer people. Crop yields are lower and the rain is less predictable, but there is a reason northerners have been farming continuously here for over 3,000 years, often in small settlements. So this dry farming life may have appealed to southerners, living in ever larger and more complex towns led by increasingly powerful temple households, with institutional control over large labor projects like irrigation. However, as we'll talk about later, they also may have had access to cattle-pulled plows during this period, which, as we'll talk about, will drastically increase productivity per capita. So to the extent that permanent migration from the south to the north did occur, it wouldn't have been a single definitive event, let alone one involving lots of people at one time. Then, as now, migration would have started with a few individuals, often young men leaving home for one reason or another. If any of them make good elsewhere, they might send word to their relatives back home. If the grass sounds greener over there, a few families might make the trip, and some might eventually change their mind, or end up somewhere else. In other words, nothing guarantees that any migrant community will endure as such. It may be absorbed into nearby local communities, or the crops might fail in a new climate you know, that farmers don't know how to farm in yet. But if the new settlement does succeed and maintain a connection with its home culture, then new migrants from their homeland are likely to move to the same areas where the relatives who have already migrated have set up a foothold. This may explain why Ubaid culture is concentrated at certain northern sites rather than being spread uniformly across the region. Southerners may have sought out villages where they knew Southerners had already successfully migrated. However, all of this would have happened in the context of a local Halaf culture. Towns like Arpachia and Tepegara were Halaf towns before they were Ubaid towns. But remember that Halaf society was also highly mobile, so many of their small-scale temporary settlements are likely invisible to archaeologists. In other words, Ubaid migrants weren't moving into a barren wilderness, but instead an area where people had been farming and herding for thousands of years and foraging for tens of thousands of years before that, and the archaeological record reflects this. So nowhere do we see a sudden disappearance of Halaf styles and their complete replacement by imported southern material. Instead, we see different Ubaid cultural traits adopted at different times and others ignored entirely by northerners. 
In other words, whatever cultural change we do see is the result of centuries of bidirectional interaction. And one issue with the migration hypothesis is the scale of the phenomenon. At the peak, this exchange network stretched from eastern Turkey to southern Iran, including the Gulf, and in some places, the so-called Ubaid phenomenon lasted seven or eight hundred years. Even if productive irrigation agriculture consistently produced higher population growth than in neighboring regions, it's hard to imagine that migration on the level of individual households or kin groups would have been sufficient to reorder the entire system of craft production across this entire region. In other words, we need an explanation for the widespread adoption of certain Ubaid cultural traits, which doesn't rely on demographic displacement, political domination, or institutional long-distance trade. The specific traits adopted in the North include both aspects of public presentation, like tripartite architecture, and personal identification, like jewelry and personal adornment. Styles of fine painted pottery and ritual items could fall into either category. However, as at Tepegabra, they seem to have started building Ubaid-style tripartite buildings, but continued to live in the same kinds of domestic houses as before. Whether this was a southern household in a tripartite house, living alongside northerners in roundhouses, or northerners building an Ubaid-style public building for their own purposes, it shows that they didn't feel compelled to abandon their domestic architecture. It's interesting that this tripartite style appears to have originated as domestic architecture in the south, really central Mesopotamia and the Hamran region, before eventually transforming into monumental architecture everywhere. We could look at similar examples of cultural adoption, two of which we've already covered, the appearance of Ubaid cultural traits in the Persian Gulf last episode, which ranged from certain types of jewelry to the local invention of pottery, apparently specifically for Ubaid contact, after which they stopped making it. We could also look at the Ubaid importation of head-shaping practices from southwestern Iran, either as a result of migration or cultural emulation or both. This may have been a way to mark members of certain families as distinctive from birth. After all, it's an identity marker that becomes permanent after the first two years of life, after which the shape of your skull as an adult will tell everyone about the circumstances of your birth. So, not to hand it to the racists, but this does actually appear to be a case where the shape of someone's skull might actually tell us something about their identity. So in a few episodes, we will see cities in the Mesopotamian alluvium adopting cultural signifiers from earlier periods at Susa, possibly because some of these urban inhabitants were themselves migrants from Susiana. Later, we'll look at new Syrian cities adopting Sumerian cultural traits after about 2600 BCE. In the latter two cases, a culture in the process of developing large and complex cities on a larger scale than ever before adopts signifiers from a neighboring culture with a longer established and presumably more prestigious cultural tradition. Of course, it's hard to call different Ubaid-era societies more prestigious or developed, since they're all doing more or less the same thing, but there may be some aspect of cultural prestige that we're not equipped to notice. So among the things, this process of elite emulation gives the elite of the existing, you know, older, more prestigious culture, a framework to adopt elites from neighboring cultures into their social circles. If the well-to-do chiefs and heads of families and priests of nearby temples and your periphery all use the same fine painted pottery that you do, and they wear the same jewelry and ornaments as you, and they build similar monumental tripartite temples or public buildings to yours, you might have an easier time inviting them to dinner than you would if you had nothing at all in common. It would also give those peripheral chiefs a way to signal to the important people in their orbit that they have legitimate ties to the more prestigious culture in question, is your culture, ultimately enabling more emulation, more dinner parties, more marriages, more chances to trade obsidian, and so on. To the extent that any aspect of Ubaid society can be called more quote-unquote developed than another, of course we're not dealing with cities or written language or anything yet, we would have to define development in terms of administrative control over farmland, manual labor, and the collection, storage, and distribution of large amounts of grain. As prominent as the southern-style architecture is in the archaeology of these emerging power centers, it bears repeating that the administrative tools used by this nascent bureaucracy originated outside the delta, stamp seals in the north, tokens in Iran, and so on. Whatever advancements in social engineering accompany these new material practices, now invisible to archaeologists, they combined to create an unprecedented concentration of political, economic, and likely religious authority in a single institution. Peripheral leaders, in this case northern chiefs and local authorities, may have aspired to this degree of wealth and power, as we'll talk about depending on the status of plow farming at the time, they may have been able to realize this aspiration. 
This process appears to have manifested itself in the construction of new physical spaces for new Ubaid rituals with new Ubaid materials. That is these new tripartite temples that we've been talking about. In other words, we see larger settlements centered on a new kind of institutional household with what seems to be a combination of social, economic, and religious authority. At the same time, some households associated with the Ubaid trade network build larger and more decorated domestic houses than their neighbors. However, like at Talabara, there's no burial evidence of wealth or status inequality yet. This may suggest that status distinction is based on something other than wealth, or at least something other than grave goods, possibly age, position within the lineage, or skills invisible to archaeology, maybe raising children, fighting wars, resolving disputes, or religious ritual. Even in the most egalitarian of foraging societies, no two individuals have truly identical status. In the absence of formal divisions between noble and commoner, most societies have gradations of status based on at least age, if not also gender. However, even two individuals with identical descriptions have different personalities, different strengths and weaknesses, and so on, all of which bear on their social status. Foraging societies prize skill in hunting and or gathering, of course, but even that is not that simple, given the difficulty of explaining the role of a charismatic leader in materialistic terms, let alone that of a quote-unquote shaman or religious leader. Furthermore, especially in a society where most people make their own materials, skill in making tools and baskets would vary widely between individuals, which would likely also affect these individual social standing. However, all these skills, hunting, gathering, crafts, leadership, and so on, most reflect on the qualities of an individual and are unlikely to be passed on from generation to generation. Even if a particularly good hunter managed to pass their skills on to their children, who all grew up to parlay hunting prowess into social prestige as adults, it's unlikely that this ability would persist in the same family for generations. The same holds true for charisma, or skill in making stone tools, or any other individual pursuit. They're hard to inherit, and basically impossible for a child to do better than a skilled adult. This is why, as we'll see in a few episodes, Children buried with lots of treasure are a sure sign of inherited social inequality. This is one major reason that foraging societies tend to remain egalitarian over time. Inequality resulting from an individual's personal qualities rarely lasts more than a generation or so. On the other hand, if a society has a concept of property in the sense that an individual household can not only quote-unquote own a product of land or a herd of livestock, but also pass on that ownership from generation to generation, it's not hard to see how some households would end up more powerful than others. After all, absent other problems and with enough pasture land and fodder in dry seasons, a herd of cattle will grow over time, and a family in control of a large herd could share out a massive amount of dairy products, meat, and leather on a regular basis and still see their holdings grow over the generations. In other words, they could build relationships with gifts and dinner parties and still see their economic leverage increase relative to their neighbors over time. That's assuming, of course, that the same herd is passed down intact without being divided between different heirs. Of course, we don't know their inheritance practices, so we can't be sure. Unlike its societies in which social status results from one's individual qualities and therefore tends to dissipate over the generations, Status resulting from ownership of productive capital, that is, land and or livestock, has the potential to accumulate over time. However, it's important to stress that agriculture and livestock don't necessarily create a class society. We've already looked at the four or five thousand years separating the first agriculture from whatever it is we're dealing with now. As I've alluded to, one of the material tipping points during this period may have been the introduction of the plow pulled by livestock, before which people would have had to work the ground with hand tools alone. So like I said, it's not entirely clear when cattle started pulling plows. The plows themselves, presumably made entirely out of wood and other organic materials, have all decayed. We do know that plowing was common by the mid-3000s BC, when we see the style of farming depicted on cylinder seals. The strain from pulling a plow gives cattle bone lesions. During this period, cattle with these lesions appear across northern Mesopotamia and Anatolia, as well as in Palestine, Crete, and farther north in Europe. In some places, these lesions appear as early as the 6000s BCE. However, they can also result from walking on uneven terrain. So, the increased appearance of these bone lesions in cattle may result from grazing practices taking cattle on longer trips through more hilly terrain. So why might Southerners choose to leave the productive Delta Plain and take up plow agriculture in the dry farming regions of the North? Not only are Northern farms less productive per square meter of land, but rainfall in any particular area is less reliable than irrigation downstream. 
One reason might be that once you have cattle, a plow, and enough land, it's very little extra work to plow more land. Whereas the thing about digging ditches is that it's a lot harder to make an ox do it. Whereas with digging ditches, it's the same amount of labor to move a cubic meter of dirt out of the way, regardless of how you do it. Someone's got to do it. So in other words, although plowing is less productive on a per unit basis, it scales up much more easily than irrigation farming, allowing fewer people to reap a much larger harvest. It also alters the distribution of labor. In other words, people don't have to do as much manual labor on the farm as they would have otherwise done with hoes. But on the other hand, it also imposes a need to take care of cattle. In addition to eating grass all year, including during the dry season, draft animals also need to eat a diet of calorie-rich grain in order to give them the strength to pull all that extra weight. And of course, someone needs to grow that grain to feed them. In other words, growing grain is still a physically arduous process for both man and beast, but plows vastly increase the amount of land that one household is able to cultivate, and therefore the amount of grain that the adults in that household are able to grow. To paraphrase Fisher, Price, and Stein in a 2021 article, societies using these plows tend to be more socially stratified than societies where most people rely on hoes alone. The conventional explanation is that plowing increases the overall yield, creating a surplus large enough to feed people working other jobs, working as not only artisans but also administrators, and this process involves a whole lot of clearing new land for those new plowed fields. The other half of the explanation comes when the edges of these massive swaths of extensive farmland start to bump into each other. In other words, just like before, people can keep their freedom as long as there's empty wilderness to move out to and develop, but eventually run out of empty land. That is, you need a formalized system of excluding most people from accessing what used to be too much land for people to use. In other words, you need a concept of ownership. Furthermore, like I said, draft animals need to eat similar kinds of grain to the kinds of grain that people eat. They're less picky, and you don't need to grind them into flour. But there's no way around the caloric necessity. If you want to use these cattle's labor to increase your grain yields, you need to feed them some of the food that your relatives could have eaten, you know, the grain that they're growing on this land. And not everyone can afford to do this. In other words, especially for a smaller family on a smaller plot, separated from other households by a large amount of space, it probably wouldn't be worth it to maintain several adult cattle feeding them human food when those farmers could easily grow all their own food with hand tools and then eat all of the grain that they grew themselves. But when you have several households living near each other, starting off with different friends and relatives, different access to social networks and so on, not only will some households end up with more cattle than others, but the ability to feed those cattle enough grain to pull plows relies on much more labor than these households could produce on their own. In other words, even with a drastically improved productivity, a cattle pulled plow can increase productivity by as much as 10 times, allowing one team to plow up to 0.4 hectares per day. That's about as much as one acre, and incidentally, about as much as one iku, the Sumerian unit of land that is about as much as one acre, a little less. Both of which probably result from the fact that, you know, that is the amount of land that one plow team can plow in one day. That said, though, the process of growing and harvesting grain, either way, still requires a huge amount of human labor. So you might notice a potential positive feedback loop here. A household with the resources to support a team of cattle can agree to lend them out so that households without their own cattle can grow grain in return for a promise from those households without cattle to pay some of that grain to the household with the cattle. In fact, by plowing more households' fields, the household with the cattle, for simplicity's sake, let's call this the chief's household, could increase both the total productivity of the entire region and the amount of grain flowing into their own personal household storage. They could use this extra grain to feed more cattle to make them strong enough to plow more fields in exchange for more grain. Over time, this would allow the chief's household to consolidate more and more power over cattle ownership, grain storage, and the collective labor of the community. It's true that we can't know for sure that the system already existed in the 5th millennium BCE. One could certainly imagine a more egalitarian distribution of ownership, with teams of cattle owned collectively and fed from a common storehouse, with no individual household in charge. However, the system I just described, with one wealthy household using its ownership of plow teams and cattle to force poorer nearby households into an unequal relationship, has existed across Afro-Eurasia for centuries at least, from Greece and Italy to Ethiopia. Often, as in Ethiopia, the wealthier household has an obligation to plow others' fields before their own, but the result is always the same, a consolidation of the fruits of the community's labor in the hands of the wealthiest household in the region. Even if this process of centralization had already begun during the early 5th millennium, 
There's not a whole lot of evidence for entrenched wealth disparity during this period, like I said. In fact, public buildings may have been collectively run during this period, preventing any particular household or lineage from gaining undue influence. But as I mentioned, the evidence for inequality does start to appear in this region by the end of the millennium, including at Tepegara. So the seed for these trends of inequality may have been sown during the Northern Ubaid. This increased overall productivity may account for the population growth we see in the north during this period. More land cultivated by more extensive plowing would produce more grain overall, which could feed a growing population. The whole process I described could and likely did scale upwards, with ever larger herds of cattle plowing ever larger amounts of land. We do have evidence for large-scale grain storage during this period. At Kosak Shamali in northern Syria, one of these storage buildings burned down, carbonizing all the produce inside and preserving it for future archaeologists. In one area, they found 1.2 liters of a mix of einkorn and emmer. Like I said way back in episode 2, einkorn may have been a weed in emmer fields, grown and harvested with the crop itself. Both cereals were apparently stored hulled, that is, in their seed coat, which prolonged their shelf life and made them harder to process later. Naked or free threshing varieties were common across Mesopotamia by this point, but this community seems to have prioritized long-term storage. This einkorn appears to result from a unique domestication event, more similar to wild varieties from early Neolithic sites in Syria than to any modern variety of wheat. Elsewhere, at Kosak Shamali was three liters of processed barley, which is also stored, hold, along with burned chaff and straw, possibly from processing the same barley, and the seeds of peas, lentils, and flax. And of course, the point of storing food on a large scale was so that someone would eventually eat it, ideally on terms favorable to the chief's household. And as we've been talking about constantly, this almost certainly involved various kinds of feasts. The concept of a work feast, where you're given a feast in exchange for work you're expected to do, would definitely apply to the harvest I've been describing. After a huge amount of work on the entire community's behalf, the chief's household, having lent out their plow teams to everyone's farm, would find itself in charge of a huge amount of food collected from all the people whose fields they just plowed. Some of this food would go into long-term storage, of course, as I just described, but more likely than not, once this massive surplus of food was assembled at the end of harvest time, collected from the entire community, the chief would host a massive feast to share out part of the surplus and to reward everyone for the hard work they did on the chief's behalf. Of course, everything I said previously about feasts also applies in this context. It would have been a venue for the chief to show off their social capital to other chiefs, to give spectacular gifts acquired from distant trade partners, to reward their most loyal supporters, and to display their wealth to the community at large. At the same time, it would have given his guests a chance to party, to drink beer, and eat baked goods they didn't have time to make themselves, to meet new people from out of town, and so on. In other words, we can't assume that regular people were miserable this whole time. In fact, if the trend of increasing productivity played out as I described, they may have actually been grateful to the chief for saving them from starving. And we can't assume that nobody ever had fun at these parties. Anyway, let's finish up at the site of Tepegaura, which is occupied continuously before, during, and after the northern Ubaid period. We're in the far northeast of modern Iraq, 20 kilometers east of Nineveh, near modern Mosul. Gaura is a small site, about 2.5 hectares, on the Khosr River, a tributary of the Tigris. This location, where the Assyrian plains meet the Zagros Mountains, has served as a vital crossroads for several trade routes for millennia. During the Ubaid, it connected the north-south Tigris route with the east-west trade routes bringing copper from central Iran and lapis lazuli from Afghanistan. The oldest level at Tepegara, level 20, dates to the Halaf period before the appearance of Ubaid cultural traits in the north, sometime in the late 5000s BCE or so. During this period, people lived in small, round houses scattered all around the village with no clear spatial organization. The area between them appears to have served as a common area for craft production, cooking, and eating, and so on. Figurines appear in the same context as material from these domestic activities, suggesting that their religious worship happened in the same place as the rest of their daily life. The first markers of Ubaid material culture appear in level 19, since both new artifacts, pottery and clay molars, are related to cooking and eating, they may have been introduced as part of new feasting traditions rather than by migration or direct interaction with Southerners. We also see a rectangular mud brick building with flimsy walls. It doesn't have a tripartite layout yet, but it does have a central chamber 10 meters long, suggesting a similar purpose to Ubaid tripartite buildings. In other words, it may have served as a temple. Notably, none of the diagnostic features of Halaf society disappear during this level. 
Halaf pottery, roundhouses, painted female figurines, and the local style of stamp seals all survived this first wave of Ubaid contact, which indicates lots of cultural continuity. We see a similar situation during level 18, the third level we're looking at. The building from earlier is rebuilt on a similar basic layout, but now with a clearly tripartite plan, marking the first appearance of this Ubaid architectural feature at Tepegara. An altar in the central chamber indicates that this building was used for religious ritual. In other words, from this point on, we can safely call this building a temple. The specific kind of tripartite building which appears at Gara and other northern sites is more similar to those at Diala Valley sites like Tel Abada than to those in the southern delta like Ur or Eridu. We also see the first stone maceheads, which were modeled on a real type of weapon, but which appear to have served as a symbol of leadership. Their appearance alongside the earliest tripartite building suggests but doesn't prove a connection between the two. In other words, it's possible that the person in charge of the temple wielded the mace as a symbol of their power, like a scepter. At the same time, none of the Halaf cultural traits I mentioned disappear, although Halaf pottery does become less common relative to Ubayid pottery over time. This Halaf-Ubayid transition will last well into the 4000s BCE. Roundhouses and painted female figurines disappear by level 16, and the local styles of pendants and stamp seals will disappear by the end of level 15. As we mentioned, it's notable that personal aspects of presentation, like stamp seals, outlast more public features, like the shape of houses and temples. So there's no need to describe these levels one by one, let's skip forward to level 13, the penultimate Ubayid level around 4600 BCE. By now, we have firm evidence that Gaura is serving as a regional administrative center, with three public buildings which seem disproportionately large for such a small settlement. In other words, as we'll talk about, this temple complex appears to have played some role in administering agricultural production and storage for the entire area, including among mobile herders who didn't live at Gaura year-round. For the first time during this period, the outer walls of this building are decorated with ornamental niches, like other monumental buildings in the Ubayid world. This is also the first level where stamp seals are common, likely indicating the growing importance of this institutional administration. Many of these seals, now in the Ubaid style instead of the more local northern style, depict ritual scenes with people wearing masks and headdresses surrounded by animals. One depicts what may be a line dance with three figures in a row striking a similar pose. So as we talked about ad nauseum earlier, it's impossible to know how social identity worked in villages like this. The most important aspects of group identity in modern society may not have even registered in prehistoric societies and vice versa. That is, they may or may not have thought of themselves in terms of ethnicity, certainly not race as we do today. At least part of identity is intentionally constructed. People are aware of their membership in a particular group, and they choose to construct and maintain that identity in a variety of ways, most of which are invisible to the archaeological record. What we do see, as I described, is the gradual adoption of various aspects of Ubaid material cultures, first pottery and clay grinding tools, then architectural styles, and what may be the maced symbol of authority, followed by the gradual disappearance of certain halaf traits, first painted figurines and the shape of houses, then more personal aspects of identity. It's likely that southern modes of social organization accompanied these aspects of physical culture. For example, unlike during the Halaf level, these rectangular tripartite houses have clearly defined spatial perimeters between them, and domestic activities happen inside rather than in the open area between houses. To the extent that this tells us anything about their society, it suggests that domestic activities like craft production, cooking, and eating happened indoors. Since the non-monumental tripartite buildings were likely the domestic homes of extended families, this suggests that this production was confined to the household level, not shared between households. This might suggest a continued enclosure of women and their labor, continuing from our discussion of the pottery Neolithic. In other words, this might reflect male heads of family trying to subject women to a subservient role in households controlled by their husbands and fathers. As I mentioned, the longest-lived aspects of Halaf culture were markers of individual identity. Even after the people of Gara had built an Ubayid temple and started building houses and making pottery in the Ubayid style, their stamp seals, pendants, and the ornaments sewn onto their clothes still reflected their local northern culture. They didn't adopt the slender Ophidian-style figurines from the south, instead they continued making their northern-style Venus figurines, even after they stopped painting them, suggesting a continuity of religious practice, even after they set aside a particular building for worship, like in the south. Similarly, they maintained their traditional burial practices. Whereas southern sites like Eridu had dedicated cemeteries for adults, 
80% of human remains from Ubaid Gaura are children, mostly buried under houses. Adults were either buried elsewhere or disposed of by some other means. So let's end with level 12, the final Ubaid level at Tepe Gaura. It's about 4400 BCE, the very end of intensive cultural interaction between the north and the south. By now, the village had abandoned their old, small, round houses in favor of larger, tripartite domestic houses, which were likely home to a larger extended family. All of these large buildings, including the white room we'll talk about in a second, had the same layout, with a long central hall surrounded by side rooms for various domestic activities, including spindle whorls for spinning wool into thread, which first appeared during this period. So this level is dominated by a monumental tripartite building called the White Room, after its plastered walls. Its corners point to the cardinal directions like other Ubaid temples, and the central hall is 11 meters, or 36 feet, long. Lots of stamp seals and seal impressions indicate an active, official bureaucracy. One seal depicts a person walking two saluki, like dogs, the evidence of the breed's long history in Mesopotamia. In addition to this evidence of formal administration, this building was also home to far more infant burials than any other particular building, indicating some kind of religious importance. In other words, this building was a center of political, economic, and religious life, with a complex bureaucracy in charge of a central storehouse of grain. As at other periods, this public building produced several stone mace heads, which appear to have been used as a kind of scepter. Like I said, the mace was originally used as a weapon, but it maintained its symbolic importance well after it became obsolete. Mesopotamian society will associate maces with gods and kings well into the second millennium BCE. The mace heads at Tepe Gara are made of hematite. Elsewhere, they're made of granite or basalt. Nearby this white room, archaeologists found large numbers of both fine painted pottery, associated with elite feasts, and a style of crude, mass-produced bowl called wide flower pots. As we'll talk about in future episodes, opinion differs on exactly what these mass-produced bowls were used for, but they appear in large numbers around this time, always associated with these large administrative institutions. For now, it's enough to say that they appear to be associated with the redistribution of grain as subsistence rations for manual workers and or for serving food to large groups of people. In other words, we see fine pottery for impressing important dinner guests, stored side by side with cheaply produced pottery for feeding large numbers of regular people. In addition to storing grain, we also have evidence for the production, storage, and exchange of various craft goods. Artisans worked valuable imported materials like lapis lazuli, gold, and obsidian into jewelry and fine works of art. Remember that Gara sat at the crossroads of several overland trade routes. These materials themselves are evidence of long-distance trade reaching as far away as Central Asia, and the fine goods produced here would have facilitated additional trade with other elites impressed by these exotic materials. In fact, the prevalence of spindle whorls may suggest commodity production for export, a major step forward in the increasing development of a complex economy. So, by this last Ubaid period at Gara, we see a consolidation of several different sources of power in a single institutional household. Not only are regular people contributing to this temple storehouse in transactions recorded with stamp seals and participating in various kinds of communal feasting events centered on and organized by the temple, but they're also burying their dead children underneath its floor. In other words, we see not only a material transfer of grain from the laity to the temple coffers, but also a real spiritual investment by the community in the temple. We can't know what they believed, but a later Sumerian text says that those who die as infants feast on honey and cream in the afterlife. Burying their infants under the floor of this temple may have been a way to ensure a similar fate for their children. Speaking of which, one child under 10 years old was buried with a bone flute under his head. The people of Gara made bone flutes with two, four, and six holes. At the end of level 12 at Tepegara, to quote the Cambridge Ancient History, quote, the buildings were destroyed in a violent conflagration accompanied by a massacre, end quote. Bodies were left lying in the streets with stones in their backs, which indicates that the town was abandoned in a hurry, and the people didn't even return to bury their dead relatives. Whatever the cause of this violence, it marked the disappearance of Ubaid culture from the site of Tepegara. As we'll see in a future episode, level 11 will mark the beginning of a new regional trend. And that is that on the Northern Ubaid period. So, returning to Nanasuen at Nippur. So previously, the good god Nanasuen left the city of Ur and went on a journey upriver to Nippur. 
He was honored along the way by other gods until he arrived in Nippur, the home of his father Enlil. He stood at the grand stairway of his father who begot him and called out to the porter of his father who begot him. Open the house, porter, open the house. Call, call, doorkeeper, open the house. I, Nanasuan, have gathered bulls for the cow pen for the house of Enlil. Porter, open the door. I, Ashimbabar, have collected fattened sheep for the house of Enlil. Porter, open the door. I, Nanasuan, shall purify the cow pen for the house of Enlil. Porter, open the door. I, Ashimbabar, shall feed meal to the goats for the house of Enlil. Porter, open the house. I, Nanasuan, have porcupines for the house of Enlil. Porter, open the house. And this formula repeats with, again, the long-tailed bush rats, the turtles, etc. He repeats the earlier list of offerings. And then... Porter, open the house. Kalkal, open the house. I will give you that which is in the prow of the boat as a first offering, and I will give you that which is in the stern of the boat as the last offering. Rejoicing. Kalkal, in charge of the bolt handle. Rejoicing. The porter, rejoicing. Opened the house. At the house of Enlil, Nanasuen made the offerings. Enlil, rejoicing over the offerings offered bread to Suen, his son. Enlil rejoiced over Suen and spoke kindly. Give sweet cakes to my little fellow who eats sweet cakes. Give sweet cakes to my nana who loves eating sweet cakes. Bring out from the Akur the bread allotment and first quality bread for him. Pour out for him my finest beer, my pure sweet cake, syrup, crescent cake, and clear water for him. Suen replied to his father who begot him. Father who begot me, I am indeed satisfied with what you have given me to eat. O great mountain, father who begot me, I am indeed satisfied with what you have given me to drink. Wherever you lift your eyes, there is kingship. Give to me, Enlil, give to me. I want to set off for Uru. In the river, give me the carp flood. I want to set off for Uru. In the fields, give me speckled barley. I want to set off for Uru. In the marshes, give me kuda carp and suhu carp. I want to set off for Uru. In the reed beds, give me old reed and fresh reed. I want to set off for Uru. In the forest, give me the ibex and wild ram. I want to set off for Uru. In the high plain, give me the mashgurum tree. I want to set off for Uru. In the orchards, give me syrup and wine. I want to set off for Uru. In the palace, give me long life. I want to set off for Uru. He gave to him. Enlil gave to him. And he set off for Ur. In the river he gave him the carp flood, and he set off for Ur. In the field he gave him speckled barley, and he set off for Ur. In the pond he gave him kuda carp and suhur carp, and he set off for Ur. In the reed beds he gave him old reed and fresh reed, and he set off for Ur. In the forests he gave him the ibex and the wild ram, and he set off for Ur. In the high plain he gave him the mashkaroom tree, and he set off for Ur. In the orchards he gave him syrup and wine, and he set off for Ur. In the palace he gave him long life, and he set off for Ur. My king, on your throne, for Enlil. May Nanasuen make you be born for seven days. On your holy throne, for the great mother Ninlil, may Lord Ashimbabar make you be born for seven days. Mm -hmm.